Good morning, everyone. I have to wait for that cue from the back. So it's good to see you all. What a, a privilege and an, uh, just a joy to worship the Lord together. It's like we could just keep doing that all day. Um, the voice would give out before I would want to stop. But uh, yeah, what an awesome God we serve. How glorious he is and praise his holy name. Uh, a couple of announcements before we get started. We will be having communion at the fall at the end of next week's service, as well as a barbecue. Um, and the way that that typically works is RSVP to Filler Alley. Uh, so because the mains are provided, the meat's provided, and then people pitch in bringing sides and nibblies and drinks and dessert. And we just uh, kind of convert the back of the sanctuary to... Uh, put out tables and chairs and enjoy a meal together. So you're all welcome to attend, and it's a great blessing. Uh, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are an awesome God, that there is no one like you, that you have created all things, and by you all things consist. And thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for giving us a Savior in Jesus Christ and for revealing yourself in truth, that you have drawn near to us, that you are glorious and good, that your love and your faithfulness, they endure just like you. We thank you, Lord, for your, your wisdom and your strength and your goodness toward us all. We're just in, I'm just in awe of you. And Lord, we just want to worship you today. And as we open your word, we, we do desire to hear from you so that we can walk in your ways and bring honor to your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll be in Genesis chapter 16, if you'll turn in your Bibles there. No one's a stranger to feeling time pressure. Has this ever happened to you where you wake up and you're like, oh no, I'm late. And you run into the, run to go brush your teeth or get your clothes on. And you're about halfway through the process when you just go, wait a second, what time is it? And you look at the clock and it's 2 a.m. And you're like, oh, okay. Has that ever happened to anyone? It's definitely happened to me on multiple occasions. But you're just, you're in a hurry. It's annoying when that happens, but you also have a sense of relief. Like, woo, I'm not late. I get more sleep. That's good. We can feel a sense of urgency or time pressure because of an emergency. Something's happened and, and there needs, needs to be prompt action. Like a family needing to evacuate because fire's taken hold on their home or when a medic discovers the patient is unconscious and they need to... Uh, Get that patient breathing again, and we can feel time pressure if you're sitting an exam. You have a limited amount of time, and there's a lot of questions, and you're like, oh, I need to prioritize which can I actually answer because I, I don't think I can do all this. There's times where we've taken our card for servicing, and we have an appointment in the afternoon, and we're like, they got to get moving. Like, I'm not going to make this appointment unless they finish, and so there's that pressure of waiting, and We've all felt this in different ways. You can have the biological clock ticking and feel like I have a limited amount of opportunity to have children or to, to accomplish the things I want to do. And we can get our hopes up just to have them dashed. We can resign ourselves to waiting or sink into despair. Abram was a man who believed God. His faith was accounted as righteousness and God made many promises to Abram. He cut a covenant with him. He told him his descendants would be like the dusts of the earth, like the stars in the heavens, that they would inherit the land when he didn't even have a son yet. He didn't have a child at all. And he was 
um, at this stage, today, around 85 years of age. And what Job said in Job 14, 19, with agony towards God in his loss, having lost his wealth and children, Abram could have said concerning time, where it says, as water wears away stones and as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. It's like time. When you're expecting something to happen and it doesn't happen, it can erode our faith in God or our faith can be strengthened to trust God and to wait on him, to look to him. The fact that God sees us, he knows us, he hears our affliction. It gives us confidence in his faithfulness. So we pick up our passage in Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dealt, dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. God had made this promise to Abram that he would make of him a great nation, but he didn't have a child. And Sarai, she had an Egyptian servant girl, a, a woman who they likely obtained during their time in Egypt. And we're not told if Abram I, I would assume he did, but we're not told that he spoke to Sarai and told her all the things that God had promised him. And if he had, I imagine that would put a degree of pressure on her to feel like I, I'm part of the story. Uh, God has promised we would have a child. Now, relevant points from the previous chapters, Abram acknowledged that it's God who gives conception. You haven't given me a child, is what he said. And then after reminding God that he had not yet given him an heir, God affirmed, your heir will come from your body, right? It's the child will come from you. Now, Sarai volunteered. The Lord had obviously restrained her from having children since she hadn't had one yet. If it would have happened, it should have happened by now. Perhaps she's thinking. And she had done everything possible to have a child naturally. And because for 10 years, she had not had a child since the promise she offered Hagar as a surrogate to conceive and bear a child that she would raise as her own. It was not an uncommon practice in the ancient world. There was no law forbidding it. And Abram, it says, heeded Sarai who gave him Hagar as wife. Now we don't read about Abram seeking the Lord about this. I try to put myself in Sarai's shoes, how she might feel and likely despairing and discouraged and feeling a bit like a failure, she decides she's going to help God out. As if he didn't see or know exactly what was happening. God had not given her what she wanted. It says like, I want to obtain children from her. There's an I in there. She wants a child. She hasn't received a child. After all, he promised. Maybe this was the way that he would bring his word to pass. Their efforts had not yielded any results, and so they took cues from the world to obtain an heir by the power of the flesh, not by faith in God. God had revealed his plan, and Sarai figured she knew how it could come to pass, and so they took action to do so. Now, have you ever done this? We can do this all the time. God puts a desire in our heart, 
and we see what we can do to accomplish what God has said or what he's put in us to do. We can consult or rely upon others rather than trusting in the Lord and waiting on him in obedience. Though, it, though he tarry long, though he waits. It can be very subtle, but there, if there's any departure from us in looking to God in faith marked by obedience, uh, it, it moves toward disaster. And Asa, king of Judah, is a really good example of this. The word of God came to him and it says he took courage. He stamped out idolatry in Jerusalem, in Judah and Benjamin. He renewed the altar of the Lord. It says that the Jews, devout Jews, came to him in droves. They made a covenant before the Lord. They rejoiced and they had rest. These are all awesome things. He's a man described with a heart that was perfect toward God all his days. That is very high praise to say that your heart has been perfect towards God all your days. In the 36th year of his reign, however, King Basha of the Northern Kingdom came against Jerusalem and Asa sought a league with Ben-Hadad of Assyria. Excuse me, Syria. So he took money out of the, te- out of the temple treasury and he gave it to Ben-Hadad and said, make a league with me like you had with my father before me. And everything seemed to work well. Uh, The enemy was driven out. They actually recovered some land that was theirs previously. And he relied upon the king of Syria rather than God. He was rebuked by the prophet. It made him very angry. But look what 2 Chronicles 16, 12 says. It says, and in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet And his malady was severe, yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So the problem was not that he had military or allies or doctors. The problem was he did not seek the Lord when he was in trouble. Here's a man whose heart was perfect toward God all his days, but he didn't always rely on the God he believed in. That can be us. We know the Lord. We believe the Lord. He's spoken and we say, yes, true, amen. But we don't always rely upon him. We don't always look to him. Did God have the power to heal him and save him from his disease and his feet? Yes, he did. Did God have the power to cause Sarai to conceive? Yes. Sarai credited God with restraining her. She could have credited God for enabling her. Right? The one who restrains me, he can also help me because he's involved in this. We need to remember that. May the Lord help us. Genesis 16, verse 4. So he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Abram slept with Hagar. She conceived with disastrous results. So they get what they want in conceiving a child, but a lot of strife and trouble in the home. It confirmed Sarai's barrenness. So it just added on to that pain she was already dealing with. And Hagar's filled with pride. 
She's treating Sarai with contempt when their roles are not equal. She's still the servant. She's still the slave, but she's with child. Abram's child. Agur wrote in Proverbs 30, it's unbearable when a servant rules or when a handmaid that is heir to endure a handmaid that is heir to her mistress. In this case, Hagar, she treated Sarai with contempt, like she was cursed. And the lines of slave and mistress were blurred. And Abram finds himself in the middle of this quarrel. And she said, my wrong be upon you. The Lord judge between you and me. She realized she had made a mistake in offering Hagar to Abram. But she pointed out his responsibility for going along with it. Like, you should not have gone along with this. This is a huge problem. No one was guiltless in the matter and her blame should not be shifted to him. I mean, we all stand before God as our judge. God will hold us each accountable for our own sin. At the same time, Abram had contributed to it because he didn't seek the Lord. He didn't wait on the Lord. And Abram affirmed, Hagar, yes, she is your servant. She is, and in those days, a servant or a slave was like your property. You're free to do whatever you want with her. That was a way of showing his love and uh, loyalty and allegiance to his wife was the greatest and hopefully uh, eliminating any jealousy like he had, didn't have divided loyalty. He's like, you know, you're my wife and uh, I'm not going to put myself in the middle here. I'm taking your side in this. And that resulted in Sarai treating Hagar harshly. It's like she punished her for her own frustrations and feelings of inadequacy. And she was an easy target. She was a servant. She had no recourse. She wasn't having Abram back her up at all. She was bullied. She was lashed upon with violence. And as a result of that treatment, she ran away. It's like Sarai was scornful and Hagar was proud and she left. Verse seven. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. This is something really amazing that happened. It wasn't uncommon for uh, slave owners or people who had servants who ran away would pursue them and bring them back, right? Well, in this case, we don't see Abram saddling his mule and going out to find her. The angel of the Lord found her and meets with her and speaks with her. And the fact that he found her by this spring of water on the way to Shur suggests he was looking for her. He knew who she was. He calls her by name. He says, hey, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where are you going? Where did you come from? Where are you going? What are your plans? Now, this is the first mention, and we've had many of these in Genesis, where you have the first mention of something, and we have the angel of the Lord, really a unique figure in the Old Testament. Angels are ministering spirits created by God. The angel of the Lord, it's many times there is an equality with this angel with God. Distinct from other angels, and It's a bit of a spoiler for us, but if we think about what's going to happen in Genesis 22, God spoke to Abraham and he had told him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And after he had bound his son and placed him on the altar, was picking up the knife, it says in Genesis 22, 11 and 12, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I, here I am. And he said, 
do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You see that little switch with that pronoun at the end? He doesn't say from God. He says from me. So the angel, the Lord is putting himself in that role. The Bible teaches that God, whom we sung about in the song, that is revealed to us one God in three persons, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit, the father being unapproachable in glory. uh, And the son is revealed to be Jesus Christ. John 1.18, it says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. So many believe that this appearance of this, the angel of the Lord, it's a theophany, which is the appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. When it says the finger of God etched the 10 commandments into stone. Well, the spirit does not have a finger, but a person does. And so we see a revelation of Jesus in the Old Testament before he was born of Mary, because he, he is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He was preexistent in creation. He created all things by him. All things exist. And we, Jesus compared the Holy spirit and his work to wind where the wind moves in the trees. You cannot see it where it comes from or where it's going, but you can see the effects of it in the same way. When someone's born again and they're filled with the Holy spirit, there's spiritual regeneration, there's fruitfulness and giftings that the Holy spirit gives to each one. When we read of Jesus in the new Testament, when we look back at the angel of the Lord, we see a lot of correlations between the way they acted like their character. I have a couple of examples here because Jesus is a redeemer. Angels don't redeem. They don't suffer for mankind, but Jesus has Jacob said this before he passed in Genesis 48, 15 and 16. It says, and he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac walked the God who has fed me all my long, my life long till this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Remember when Jesus read in the synagogue from the scroll of Isaiah. Well, if you continue on in that same passage in that chapter, Isaiah 63, nine, it connects God with angel of the Lord. It says in all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them in his love. And in his pity, he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. So angels are not afflicted for man. Angels do not save redeem or carry God does that. And so we see the correlation between Jesus. He came to seek and save the lost. There's Hagar. He finds her. The angel Lord finds her by that spring. It's amazing that the angel of the Lord did not appear to Noah or even until Abram at that point, but to Hagar to minister to her, this runaway slave. And he says, where are you? Where have you come from? Where are you going? And she addresses the first question, but not the second. I'm coming from Sarai to avoid her, to flee from her. It's an honest answer. It must've been very difficult for her if she would leave the home and go out into the wilderness where she had no provision, no protection. Verse nine, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. 
humble herself before her mistress. It'd be a very hard thing to do to submit to the hand that has beaten you or struck you. Now we can have confidence that the angel of the Lord who sought Hagar and knew her, he also knew what he was doing. He knew where he was sending her. He wasn't telling her to go back and to submit to being beaten. She was to return in submission to God. It was God that she was hearing. God who she should obey and trust. Even if that meant going back to a difficult situation. Now it would be very terrible application of this passage to say people should return to violent or abusive situations. It would be sound application, however, to say we should submit to God whatever he says because he's trustworthy. Whatever he tells us to do, we can do it knowing he will protect us and provide for us. Him, right? When we hear from God, we know we are safe. We're on uh, safe ground. Verse 10, then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Now there's that pronoun shift here we see again with the angel of the Lord where he says, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly. God, he's the deliverer. He's the, the giver of life. He's a savior. He knows the future. And he says, name your son Hagar, excuse me, Ishmael, which means God hears. God hears. Every time she said her son's name, it was a reminder that God heard her in her affliction. God knew what she was going through. And based upon the description of Ishmael, it was encouraging to know that God hears because he would be quite spirited, a wild donkey of a man in some translations. Uh, there is a kind of donkey, the onager or the Asiatic donkey. Uh, it's a wild donkey that's never been successfully domesticated or tamed. Like a feral donkey that refuses to bow before any master, so Ishmael would be among men. He would be antagonistic towards them, and they would be antagonistic towards him. Now, the Bible doesn't go into great detail about Ishmael's behavior. We don't really read much about his life at all. We have a brief glimpse of it, though, when Isaac was, had been weaned and they were throwing a party for him. It says he was openly mocking his half-brother. He was mocking him. Um, that's really the only thing we see. And then he, he came to Abraham's funeral when he was buried. God would multiply the descendants of Ishmael beyond numbering. The father of the Ishmaelites believed by many to be the father of Arabs and the nomadic tribes in the Arabian desert. He would dwell in the midst of his brethren. He would be his own man. They would live in tents and they would not um, be intimidated by anyone. So it's like God, it's amazing. God knows, sometimes we can put the blame on a parent for the behavior or the, the actions of a child. But this was a wild child. God knew he was going to be a handful. He's going to be antagonistic. And so let's, let's, God makes those people. He makes them. And he has plans and ways that he's working in the life of a parent who feels like, oh, I feel like a failure because my kid is a handful. They, they seem to have kids that are well-mannered and behaved. And 
And uh, people might have, like we can make judgments about people based upon the behavior of their children that we ought not to make. Let's trust the Lord and pray for them. Pray for the kid, and that kid could be you, it could be others. Genesis 16, 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. After the angel of the Lord told Hagar said, return and submit to Sarai that she would bear Ishmael and God had heard her affliction. She called the name of the Lord. You are the God who sees or El Roy. One of the many names that we see in scripture that describe the attributes of God, the God who sees. And she wondered, have I also seen the God who sees me? Have I seen him who sees me? And for that reason, the spring was called Beer Lahai Roy. The well to the living one who sees me. I find it so fascinating that God revealed himself to her as the one who had heard her affliction. And she says, he's the one who sees me. Being seen and heard, it's a wonderful picture of acceptance. It shows love and value. When you see people and you listen to them, you hear them. It used to be said that children should be seen and not heard. Perhaps you've heard that. And the background of it was to show good manners. A child ought not to interrupt adult conversation, should listen more than they speak. My dad always said, you have two ears and one mouth, so you should listen twice as much as you speak. I don't know if that maxim ever stuck with me, Um, but... It, it is, okay, that makes sense. I should be a better listener. So I'll definitely take that on board. And I still need to remember that to this day. Uh, and I've, I've been in a work situation where there was, we were going through litigation with a corporation and the business manager said, no one, of, no one of our group is to say anything. If they ask you a question, you redirect it to somebody else who actually knows what they're talking about. <laughs> Like, I, don't be volunteering information in this meeting. This is high-level people. Redirect their question to the lawyer. It's not for you to answer. So if, if you grow up and you believe children should be seen and not heard, if, if you go into a meeting and they're like, well, you need to be there, but we don't want you to contribute in any way because we don't really trust you to know what's going on in the deck plates, some might imagine God as being even more strict. Like, you got to watch what you say around him. Well, God hears everything and he hears our affliction. He sees us when we're hurting. He knows when we're wandering. He knows who we are and where we're going. He heard the affliction of a slave and he sought her. And he knew her son even before he was born. And his name would remind them that God hears. Having come from Egypt, I'm sure she was well acquainted with the worship of idols, the sun, the moon, animals. And moving into the house of Abram, there was a big shift because now it was a monotheistic household where he worshiped God, the creator of all things, the one who made the sun, the moon, and the stars, who created all the animals. 
and her encounter with this angel of the Lord at the spring of water, it was like nothing she had ever experienced before. Where she's met by a being who knows her, who heard her affliction, who speaks of the future and what did come to pass. Called her by name and that you will have countless descendants. Knowing that God heard her, that God saw her, she could return to her mistress by faith in this God, that he would protect her and provide for her, that he knew where he was sending her. We don't read of her saying, well, you don't know what you're saying. He did. He heard her affliction. This encounter with the angel of the Lord guided her to voluntarily return without incident. It just goes straight to saying she bore a son. It follows that if she was obedient to go back, she was obedient to submit to her mistress. And notice when it came time to bear a son, who named the baby? Abram did. It says he named him Ishmael. It's evident that she related this meeting with the angel of the Lord to Abram. And Abram believed her and he named the child Ishmael. So he listened to her. He submitted to the word of the Lord because the Lord had heard Hagar's affliction. I mean, that would be an incredible thing to hear, right? Almost a rebuke. Like in my household, there have, there has been someone who's been afflicted and a prompting to repentance, desiring to show love. He was 86 years old when Ishmael was born, 11 years after he departed from Haran. Sarai and Abram, they're not the only people who, when God revealed his plan to make of Abram a great nation, instead of seeking the Lord, figured they knew how God's plan was going to come about or when it should come about, how it should play out. We see this hundreds of years later when a descendant of Abram named Moses was drawn out of water and named so by the daughter of Pharaoh. He was raised in her house as her own. Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 7 verse 22. This is part of the address that Stephen gave to the Jewish Sanhedrin concerning their history. It's a really beautiful section of scripture where he recounts the history of Israel and how it leads to Jesus being rejected. Who is the son of God? Acts 7, starting in verse 22. And it's a bit of a passage, but there's some really awesome things in here. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. It says Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was a mighty prince in word and deed. When he's 40 years old, it says, 
We know that he was aware he was not an Egyptian by birth because when he went to see his brethren, it wasn't his, his um, princely brothers. It was the Hebrews who for hundreds of years had been oppressed as slaves in Egypt. So the Lord puts on his heart, not only that, but that he would be the one to deliver them from bondage. He sees someone suffer unjustly. It says he retaliated. He defended and avenged the slave by killing the Egyptian. Notice verse 25. It says, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. So Moses supposes something. He supposes like, what better way to ingratiate myself to the people to find their favor and acceptance than by defending them, by delivering them, by showing them, I am on your side. I will deliver you from this. He's a man mighty in word and deed. He's trained in all the ways of Egypt. He stepped in and killed a man. Did it work? No. He actually was pushed away, physically pushed away. He goes there the next day and he sees them quarreling together. And he says, guys, why, your brethren, why are, you, why are you fighting with each other? And say, push them away. Are you going to kill me too? And he's like, wow. So he flees, goes to Midian. Exodus 2, it says that word of what Moses did spread to Pharaoh and he sought to kill him. So he fled to Midian where he tended, he was married, had two sons and tended the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro for 40 years. So you have a man who is 40 years old. He's a, he's a grown man. He has an idea of the way the world works and he figures he knows the way God is going to operate. He supposes he knows how to do what God had put on his heart to do. Turn now to Exodus 2, verse 23 through 25. Now, I don't know how he knew that, how he believed that the Lord would use him to deliver the children of Israel. But there came a point where he says, it's time. Now is the time. But God had other plans for the timing. He's seeing people hurting. He's saying, this has got to stop. I got to step in. I'm the one to do it. When it was God who was going to do it. Exodus 2, 23 through 25. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob and God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. Isn't that amazing? At 40 years old, he killed a man to show that he was the one to deliver Israel. At 80 years old, after tending sheep, God spoke from the burning bush and reaffirmed that call to him that he had known about all that time before. God hadn't forgotten. He heard his people. He heard their affliction. He looked upon them, he acknowledged them, and then he spoke to Moses to go get them. Moses supposed he knew the time was right and the way to announce God's calling upon his life. Sarai supposed she knew the way or knew a way that the promise of God could come to pass by giving Hagar to Abram as wife, as a surrogate. 
But in both cases, the people who knew God and the people who knew God spoke to them did not wait upon him and seek him and trust him for the timing of things. I like how both passages have in common. God's the one who does not change. That he hears people. He looks upon them. He acknowledges them. I think of Jesus facing so much pressure by his family and his disciples and even Satan to skirt God's timing to accomplish God's will. Like throw yourself down from this tower. But Jesus refused to do this. He was always in step with the will of the father at the right time. He waited to go up to the feast, right? Sometimes in traveling, it's like, we got to go. You know, they had a long, long trip in front of them from Nazareth going to Jerusalem. But he waited and he went up secretly. He knew what he was doing. Our Lord Jesus always submitted to his father in heaven. He looked towards that hour on Calvary when he would lay down his life to atone for the sins of the world. That hour that had been prepared for the Lord. He did not move ahead. He waited for that hour. And then when the hour came, he drank of that cup. John 12, 27 and 28. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Abram and Moses, they caused trouble by their resistance to wait on the Lord. But when Jesus was troubled, he called out to the Lord. He sought the Lord who heard him. And answered him from heaven. Amazing. What a God. Praise him that he hears and sees us. And when God looks upon you today, how does he find you? Does he find you troubled, afflicted, striving, impatient to see God do something? Like Hagar, we can run from conflict rather than seeking the Lord who sees us, who sees our affliction. You know God's made a promise to you. You haven't seen it fulfilled yet. So you can feel frustrated and angry. Or you stepped in to defend someone or avenge someone. So someone will accept you when it's God's plan 40 years from now to gentle you with meekness before bringing his word to pass. God's brought you to this hour today to remind you he has heard your affliction. He sees and acknowledges you and he bids you to return to him in a place of total submission before him, trusting his timing that you will be obedient to him because he is the Lord. He is our God. And as Hagar was obedient to the word of the Lord who caused her to conceive, to bring forth a son and told Abram what his name would be. May our obedience and testimony of fellowship with Jesus have an impact on others that God was glorified in Jesus and he can be glorified in us too because we trust him and obey him when it's hard. May we practice that exhortation that's written in 1 Chronicles 16, 8 through 11. And there's, this is always on time. Always the season for this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make his deeds known. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. 
Before you call, God will answer. While you are speaking, he will hear. He is the Lord and let's worship him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are an awesome God, that you know us, that you have looked upon us. You know us all by name, that you have looked upon and heard our affliction. You know when we're hurting, you know when we're feeling pressured, when we're wondering about how and when and what you're going to do to accomplish something that you've placed on our hearts and how often, Lord, we can get in the way. We can walk away from uh, seeking you and trusting you, justifying ourselves rather than humbling ourselves before you. And I pray you would have your way in each one of our hearts, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you. We would submit to your timing, trusting you, the sovereign, awesome, glorious God who created all things, who created time, who knows what's going on, who knows what you're planning and what's going to come to pass. Thank you, Lord, that we can rest confidently in you. We have assurance that we are yours and you are ours through faith in Jesus Christ and that you will help us through the Holy Spirit, not just to assist us, but because we are helpless and we are fruitless in ourselves. We are, we are, innate, we are not able to do the things that you command us, but by your grace, Lord, thank you that you accomplish great things through people who trust you. It's your work and we delight to do your will, O Lord. I pray we'd be as Christ who, who followed you patiently, who looked to you always. When he was troubled, he realized the hour that you sent him. And it was a, a bitter hour, a difficult hour. And you sustained him. You will sustain us. Lord, we praise your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.